Thank you, Chuck. So tonight, we're going to go old school. If you have your Bibles, please open them up (laughs) and turn to Malachi chapter 3. When I was a a senior pastor in San Marcos, that's how I started all my messages. It's like, we're in the Word, and we're starting with the Word. Um, uh, I mean, we're always in the Word, if you're listening to the Word, the one who's talking to you. But tonight, um, uh, thanks, Chuck, for that opening. I I really do, I want to get into some critical places in the text tonight and give you a little bit of historical background and context for the text, because text without context is just pretext to do whatever you want to. Um, I'll let you sit on that for a second. Thanks, Chuck. But we need context for the scriptures, because understanding context and, and really beginning to understand and set our focus as best we can understand it on, on a couple of things. One traditional way of doing it is first to understand what the plain meaning of the text is. What's the plain reading? Without having to know Greek or Hebrew, like what's just, what does it mean? The plain reading of the scriptures. And then a lot of times people take another step and say, okay, so what was the author's intention as best we can understand it? Like, what was the author trying to say? That gets a bit harder because we have to try and discern the intentions and thoughts and processes of the people that wrote it. And then if you're a scholar, then you have to argue about nonsensical points for the rest of your life with other people who think like you to try and prove the intentionality of someone. And this is where PhD programs come from. Uh, (laughs) This is where we get MDivs. Uh, but, but I do want to do a little bit of that tonight uh, to try and look at some of the context of a scripture because what we set our focus on uh, is, is paramount to what we begin to understand inside of it. And I, I wasn't here last week, but I heard some really great things about what Kelly was talking about. Who was here last week, heard some of that? I need to listen to the recording because the, the secondhand recap of it was awesome. Um, But uh, I want to show you guys a little video. It's a little bit connected to what Kelly was talking about last night, but it's going to set the stage some for what we're going to do tonight. Um, So I'm just going to show you this video. It's it's pretty short. You can't. Can you guys read that? So your instructions are count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. All right, just count them. There's there's only one rule for this game: is that you stay quiet. Don't ruin it for other people. Don't count out loud, because it makes the other people next to you not be able to count. Um, There's an eight-year-old in my Taekwondo class that always counts as push-ups, and I'm like, oh. I always end up doing like 30. Okay, so ready? Count. All right. How many passes? 13. 13? Man, you guys are like... Yeah. <laughs> oh, we got a literalist over here. <laughs> all right. The correct answer was 15. Congratulations, all the 15s. You guys feel proud that you got the number right? Who feels proud they got the number right? Come on. Good. Well, I have this question for you, too. Raise your hand if you saw the gorilla. Oh, that's a lot. Raise your hand if you didn't see the gorilla so we can publicly shame you. Just for those that didn't. So this is a psychological test that was developed by a guy in the late 90s. uh, And it illustrates a feature of the brain. 
It's called selective attention, uh, that the mind consumes tremendous amounts of information through your eyes. Roughly 80% of the neurological and electrical activity that goes on in the brain happens through stimulants that come in through the eyes. And there's a book called Brain Rules by a guy whose name I forgot that said he was smart, and so I believe him. (laughs) He said that one of the healthiest things you can do for your brain is to close your eyes for 60 and 90 seconds three times a day. Just close them. Because what it does is essentially like restarting your computer, or when your iPhone freezes, you do a hard reset. Like it restarts the neurological systems in the brain because there's so much information coming at you. Now, what you focus on is the information that you keep. And everything else around you, necessarily so, is discarded. Now, that is an important piece for us because what you set your sights on determines what you see. Now, this is not uh, mysticism. This is not theology. This isn't even religion, right? This is neurobiology, which means it's even more true, right? But this is a fundamental reality of how God made our bodies, how God made our brains, is that we can't consume everything that is. But just because we haven't consumed it and understood it doesn't mean that it isn't. Like there's a lot that is actually in the world around you every moment of your life that you know nothing about. Now you add into the very real spiritual dimensions of the voice of God, the presence of God, the reality of heaven invading and filling the earth. And now we've got a whole nother quantum dimension of hugeness of information that you could not consume. So why is it so important that we set our sights on something that is noble, whatever is holy, whatever is pure? Meditate, set your eyes, your sights on these things. And then the peace of God, which transcends the mind and your understanding, guards you. I'm compressing some verses there, but the point is the same. So tonight, I want to set our sights on a particular piece of Scripture that maybe you've heard a bunch, maybe you've not heard a bunch, and you'll be excited by tonight. My hunch is is that many of us have heard this Scripture in the context of the church before, if you grew up in the church, and it's, it's sort of brought resistance to your life. Um, it's a topic that oftentimes people hesitate to talk about in church, and that when people do talk about it, most folks do not shout loud amens. Some cultures really do. Um, So I'll tell you what it is so that you're not in suspense. (laughs) Although I'm worried that I'll lose you. Who's going to stay with me if you don't like the topic? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, We are going to talk about Malachi chapter 3. Uh, So if you have your scriptures, if I already told you there to turn there, it'll be chapter 3. But we're going to focus in on a particular passage of scripture um, that gets used often to talk about tithing. And this is is usually the money sermon or the building project sermon, um, (laughs) which I don't know when that sermon's coming here. Uh, I'm not privy to those discussions. Um, But, oh man, but it's going to. Um, sorry, internal sense of, I'm really excited by what, I'm just going to pause. I'm really excited by what the Lord is doing in this place. Like I feel this excitement in my spirit about the love of God and what he's doing and building here. 
as a church, as a community in this city, and for what the Lord is breathing out. How many people know that in the last 30, 40 days, there's been a dramatic shift in America? That there was a group of people that gathered in D.C. and around the world that were hearing the voice of the Father saying, there's a turnaround verdict being declared in America. And that that has happened. And I can tell you from working in business, and I get phone calls from people all around the country that are, I get a lot of startup people that call us and want to talk about doing marketing for a startup. And I've, I've received two or three calls in the last six weeks about people that are just saying, you know, my business plan blew up. I just got this great opportunity, and now we're trying to catch up. Like one, one media company uh, starting a new company, and they got the opportunity uh, to get broadcast into 50 million homes with their messages uh, on nightly news. That's an audience of 10 to 12 million people a night. And, the, and the, the owner of the company was like, man, I've been working on this forever, and then all of a sudden this opportunity happened, and now we just got to catch up. Wow. Um, so something is happening. Uh, it's not something. The Lord is breathing on our nation. He's turning around stuff. And don't let what's going on in the media fool you. There is still intentional disruption and, and disinformation that's going out there. And I'm not talking about politics. Y'all, I'm talking about your hearts. I'm talking about the affection that we have for the future of our country, for the future of our families and our children. That stuff comes after your hearts. And if it can get you to vote and do one thing, fine. But it comes after your hearts. And that's why there was so much intensity. Maybe that's why. There was so much intensity in worship tonight around the fierceness of God. I mean, Zach was like, yeah. you know, and, he, and, he, and I loved it, right? Because he was fierce, feeling the fierce heart of the Father. Yeah. Relentless, overwhelming, never-ending pursuit. Have you all been ever, ever been to like a high school football game and there's been some like dad that's cheering like way too loud <laughs> next to you? Like they're way off the charts into this game, you know? They may be weird, but most of the time they're just more invested because they got a kid playing, you know, or they spent money on the game illegally and they don't want to lose it. I don't know. Uh, that's the NCAA. Sorry. Um, but people cheer at different levels based on how invested they are in the outcome. And if and if the fierce love of God doesn't stir you up, it will when you need it. When you see the fierceness of someone and you're good and someone else is like frothing at the mouth, overcoming, you're like, well, that's good for them. It's sort of it's a little bit too much for me. Like, no, they're overcoming. They need the overwhelming, overcoming, relentless love of Jesus. You know, and I feel like tonight that some of y'all in here, um, you're not that invested in the game. And this is, this is an invitation for you tonight because there is a game that's being played. It's not even a game. That's a crummy analogy. There is a reality that is moving in the world that the Father loves you and he is pursuing you. And that he is more true and more alive than all these other lesser things that have captured your affections. And so tonight we're going to talk about God's plan for how we can partner with him to have our affections captured. It's good, Adam. And we're talking about tithing. Yeah. That's good, Adam. Come on. So to do that, I want to give us a little bit of context of this scripture. Oh, 
man, I shouldn't drink coffee before I preach. Ah, makes me excited and dry. So, do you ever wish you had an internal monologue? Sometimes I do. Um, So the context of Malachi is that Malachi, even though it's the last book in the Old Testament, you know, it's not the very last thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So the context of Malachi is that Malachi is a contemporary, uh, just on the kind of the end contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, and he's prophesying before Zechariah um, and before some of Nehemiah. So he's kind of in this area. So Uh, The context for this book is that Israel has been released from the Babylonian captivity, roughly 559, 560 B.C. If you don't know what the Babylonian captivity was, um, well, they were captive in Babylon. Uh, (laughs) But that they had come out in about 1450, they got out of Egypt, inhabited the promised land. God had a period of judges where he was teaching them through judges, and then they asked for a king, and it began the Davidic line of kings with King Solomon, um, with King Saul, David, Solomon, and down on, uh, through Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. But there was this 600-year period of kingship where Israel continued to move further and further away. And there was a northern tribe, and there was a southern tribe. There was northern Israel called, northern country called Israel, and the southern portion where Jerusalem is today was called Judah. So Israel and Judah were two nations for a period of time. And around 700 B.C., Israel was conquered by a really wicked man named Sennacherib. And he came in, the Assyrian Empire came in, decimated them, and took them away into their empire, which was, you know, Iraq area roughly today. Persia, kind of on the border of Iran. And then the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah are prophesying into this interim time when God is calling Judah, the southern kingdom, not to go the same way that the northern kingdom did, to return to God, to return. That they had a temple, but their temple and the presence of God, though presence was there, they weren't connected to him. So then about uh, 586 um, B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is burned, Uh, the gift of Solomon and all that stuff is destroyed, and they go into Babylonian exile. But then they get released, and they get released to rebuild their temple. Now, this is an important piece of information because the temple was the center of the devotional and spiritual life of Israel. We don't connect so much with that in our day and age because, you know, we are the temple, and we can engage in an intimate, devoted connection to God anywhere But this was not in the consciousness of the people at the time. Although scholars begin to say that the internal Judaism, the internal spiritual connection grew up in Babylon. That's a sermon for another time, or maybe a small group lecture. Maybe not a sermon. Uh, I think it's pretty exciting. Maybe I'll come to women's Bible study if Kelly will have me. Um, So Cyrus... If you follow prophetic things in certain veins of Christendom today, you will have heard about Cyrus uh, recently. He's been in the news. Um, Cyrus, <laughs> Cyrus releases the Jews to their homeland to rebuild the temple. But the work gets stopped. So they come back with great zeal, but they can't get anything through Congress. Or they can't rebuild the temple. 
So they got a lot of passion to return and rebuild, but they lay a foundation and nothing comes of it. So there's 38 years of opposition, and you can read about that in, in 2 Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But about 38 years after that, there's a new king. Uh, I'll save you all that deep. His name is Darius. And he funds the rebuilding of the temple, and the temple gets completed. Haggai prophesies into this period. One of Haggai's great prophecies is um, that the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former. Right? The glory of the temple, not just this temple, but the one that's coming, looking forward to, is going to be even greater. The weight of God's presence will be even more than this temple that gets rebuilt. And there are no walls protecting Jerusalem. This is the Nehemiah instruction. This is him getting released yet from another king to come with a mandate to rebuild. So here's the deal. There's a nation now that is living in occupied territory that is still run by Babylon. And they've got freedom to worship again and rebuild their central life. To have an identity again as a people that belong to God. And they've established the temple to the Lord, which is the center. But does anyone know what major facet of temple worship is missing from this temple? No one, you can, you can, Bible nerds, anyone? <laughs> the, I, the Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Well, what's the Ark of the Covenant besides, you know, a cool movie in Indiana Jones? <laughs> Man, I'm flashing to that guy getting, like, at the end with the propeller, and I was like, sorry, um, internal monologue again. So the Ark of the Covenant is missing from the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God. This is the multi-billion dollar building project God gives to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and says, go build this. He sees it in heaven and says, go build it on the earth. And in the ark are the Ten Commandments, the manna, and Aaron's rod. What does that mean? Well, the presence of God houses the covenant, the supernatural provision, and almonds. Go trail out almonds. It's fun. So that's missing. The presence of God, the covenant, the supernatural provision over Israel is missing from this worship. Right? And the people are not very connected. And they're trying to rebuild, but they're not connecting to God. Okay? So that's enough context. Otherwise, we'll be here forever. And they have no safety. They have no presence and they have no safety. There's no walls in the city. And so Malachi is prophesying some hard things and some beautiful things. We'll start with what's beautiful. This is Malachi 3.1. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Do we have context for this? They have a temple, but there's no presence. And apparently there's some people that still remembered that the presence is important in church. <laughs> and that they're asking God, they're crying out, God, send us your presence. Earlier in, in Malachi, there's this line that he says, Oh, would that I shut the gates of the temple rather than you come here and kindle fire on my altar in vain. I'd rather shut down church 
than to have you come in and worship me with no passion, with no presence. I'd rather shut it down. But he doesn't want to shut it down. He wants to prophesy that in a moment, in a suddenly moment, like suddenly there came a sound like a violent, mighty rushing wind, and the whole temple and where they were seated was shaken, and the Spirit descended with flames of fire upon them. This gets fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So, but you see these connections, right? I'm just going to do a lot of connecting and keep moving fast. So the prophecy is that he will come back to his temple, into his body. His spirit will fill it and inhabit it. And before that happens, I'm going to send a messenger that prepares the way. John the Baptist, anyone? Gets exactly quoted, right? At the end of Malachi chapter 4, which we don't have time to get into, but it's the prophecy about, behold, I send you my spirit, Elijah, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons, the hearts of the sons to the fathers. All of this stuff is deeply messianic, deeply fulfilled in the work of John the Baptist, Jesus, Acts, Pentecost. So that's the context for this. This is a longing and a yearning for the presence of the Lord to fill his temple, for a messianic hope to ignite Israel to redeem them. Okay? That's not usually the context for tithing, right? Well, this will set our focus, and I think we're going to see some different things. So Malachi 3.10, the scriptures say this. Well, Malachi 2 through 9 basically says, hey, return to me and I'll return to you. And they're like, well, where have we gone? How do we return to you? Well, you've robbed me. Well, that's sort of a jump. Like, return to me in intimacy and presence and connection? Well, okay, we'll do it. How do you return to you? Well, because you're robbing me. You're not, you're not paying me money. What? Maybe there's more, right? Is God just like, hey, you're not paying me money, so I'm angry? Probably not. Bring all the tithes, Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. Try me is test me. It's the only time, you probably heard it said, but I'm going to say it again. It's the only time in scripture that this word test gets used for God inviting us to test him. Like, hey, put a, put a demand on my character and my nature and see if this isn't true. Like, this is so important to me that I'm going to invite you in to test me on this. Like, fleece me, you know? That was a nerdy Bible insider thing. Um, so, this sort of begs the question, and we're going to touch it real briefly. What is the tithe? Okay, and the tithe is a gift of first fruits that was given in the temple, historically. We can go back to Melchizedek if you're a Berean and want to go all the way back to Melchizedek. Um, and there was no temple yet. But the idea here is, is that the whole temple system was set up so people could worship and connect to God. And it held their culture in place. The temple sacrificial system was vital for the social life of the nation. Just like having a moral, social, religious community in the United States is vital for our nation's survival. Right? It's not because we need Christian kings in our nation as much as we need a social fabric that's held together by people that have morals. You know, I mean, that's what keeps a nation connected and together. And this is what temple and the temple sacrifice did in a, you know, in a, in a tribal warlord culture 2,800 years ago. So 
the, the temple sacrifices, the first fruits are significant because the first fruits, there is a couple of first fruits in the scriptures. Um, there's a first fruits uh, ceremony. Uh, it's called Passover, which is what we have Easter uh, connected to. But there's a first fruits of barley and then there's a first fruits of wheat harvest. Those translate from Easter and Pentecost. And both of those things were times where people would harvest the barley and then the wheat, and they would bring the first sheave, the first uh, harvest of their stuff into the temple. It was your best. It represents your best. It represents um, the primacy of God in your life. I'll give you the first and the best. Now, for temple worship, the foundation for all temple worship is Sabbath. And this is what I want to talk about real briefly. Because if you are going to tithe, tithing is not just cutting a check or texting to give. That is the outworking of a system that was set up, right? And the foundation of that system, the only thing I'm going to touch on is that foundational piece, and that piece is Sabbath. And Sabbath, I think since we did guerrilla basketball and the Spurs are winning, we'll do a basketball analogy. So, in basketball, to help you understand this. So, in basketball, the ultimate success is defined by scoring more points than your opponent. That's like a John Madden quote, right? What the quarterback wants to do is drop back, and he's going to look for an open receiver. Um, Madden was the, the king of just saying uh, what was obvious. But that's why people loved him. So, basketball, I mean, at the very foundation, to win, you have to score points. Right? Well, in tithing, giving your first 10% of first fruits is like scoring. You know, that's what you have to do, you know, to win the game. But most of the time when you watch basketball at a professional level and a collegiate level, we all take for granted that everyone on the court knows how to dribble. And as someone who tried out three years for junior high basketball and never made it, I'm painfully aware how important dribbling is. So here's an LSTAT question for you, all right? I'm going super nerdy on you. Dribbling is to basketball as Sabbath is to tithing. (laughs) If you want to play the game of basketball, don't even try out for the team if you can't dribble. If you want to live a life of tithing, you've got to get Sabbath. You've got to understand Sabbath. So I'm not going to tell you about 10%. I'm going to talk about foundation. What is Sabbath? Exodus 31 says this. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Sabbath, very basic, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word create is an important word. Um, But he created, he created, and he created, and then on the seventh day, he rested from his creation. And he called that day holy, which means set apart. Which means a lot of things, most importantly, is that it's not the other six days. Like it's something different. This is a different day that is set apart for me. And the scriptures say that Sabbath is a sign throughout all generations. 
So has this gone away? Are we past all generations? The word generations is a powerful word. I'm just going to tell you that Sabbath is not done away with. This is a covenant promise, not an old covenant promise. This is a covenant promise. Now, people can get very weird about which day is Sabbath, and they start to nuke, they make a New Testament law out of it, you know? And I'm not talking about whether you worship on Saturday night or Friday night or Sunday morning, right? I'm talking about Sabbath. And the key for Sabbath is resting from your work. Now, biblically, what this means, if you've ever engaged in this conversation, is the rabbis go berserko uh, around what is work. And there's all these things Uh, I think it's fascinating and worth investigation. Um, But the foundation of work is found pretty well explained in Exodus 31 again, but Exodus 31, 2 through 3. This is the moment when God gives Moses the tabernacle, the presence, the temple, all the stuff we've been talking about. And then he says, you got to build it. And so he anoints Bezalel, son of Uri, and Hur of the tribe of Judah, and He has filled them with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship. The word craftsmanship is the word work, that you cease from your craftsmanship, that you cease from your creation, that you cease from the creative activities of you ordering chaos, birthing new things into the world through your hands. And so every time this word work or craftsmanship is used in the scriptures, it's used in Genesis 1 where God created, created, created. It's used here for craftsmanship. Everywhere else, it's in the context of Sabbath law, ceasing from your work. So look at this. Work is spirit-filled ability to create with excellence the thing God's called you to. Like This is also the first moment when God fills someone with his Holy Spirit to accomplish something in the kingdom so that there's worship on the earth just like there is in the heavens. So work is your unique kingdom gift that is filled and inspired by the voice, the breath, the movement of God on the earth to create life where there is no life, to create beauty where there's ashes, to create presence where there's division and destruction. Now, why would God want us to stop one day a week from doing that? I'll answer that in a minute. (laughs) Think about that. So, tithing is built on Sabbath. And Sabbath is about taking a break from all of your creative energy and activity to make a declaration that God is the one that even gives you all of that. I ruined that. I was going to tell you that later. That's, that's what the rest is. Is that, how many know that um, church people can get tired? How many know pastors that are exhausted? Are there any exhausted pastors in the house tonight? We can pray for you. Right, because particularly in the church, when you get into your Holy Spirit energy and activity and movement, and Chris Valentin's got some crazy good testimonies about this. Like, he was totally burnt out. He was flying around the world doing his prophetic thing. Moving in the power of the Holy Spirit was, was you know, not stewarding his body 
wasn't taking care of the very real foundational stuff. Maybe, I don't know exactly, but maybe he wasn't Sabbathing. Maybe he wasn't resting. So the allure is when you're moving with God and you're doing his stuff. Or maybe you're not doing his stuff and you're just doing your own stuff. But when you start having success, you want to keep doing it. And you want to perpetuate that. And then you start feeling like, well, if I don't, like, this is how I got here. If I stop, then I'll stop getting here. And if you accomplish things through work, through your own strength, and you arrive somewhere, then you've got to work even harder to stay there. If you work your way to the top, you've got to work even harder to keep from losing it. And what Sabbath does is it declares to yourself and to the world around you that you didn't give yourself this ability. You're stewarding God's ability in your life. This is the breath and activity of God, not me. And I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to relax. And I'm not going to try and move my life forward with all my unique skills and ability. Most of the time, because, you know, the people in your life, they want to see you. You know? They want to be present with you. There's a lot to do. Um, Aside from Sabbath. I really do encourage you guys just to ask Holy Spirit how to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And please don't let the voice of the traducer, which is my favorite word for the devil, but don't let that voice come in here and try and make you more holy and righteous because you keep Sabbath. The Bible doesn't say, and God created Sabbath and made you holy who keep it. No, he made Sabbath holy. And this is Jesus' point in the New Testament He talks about David who ate the showbread when he's being challenged about Sabbath. And he says this line. He says, which one is it? Man was made, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. What does that mean? Man was not made to keep the Sabbath. Sabbath was made so that man could experience the submission and surrender to God. So if you're made to keep a rule, then you're made for Sabbath. But if you're made so that you can connect to God, Sabbath is made for you to live inside of him. It's kind of esoteric, but... Okay, so that's what tithing is. Fundamentally, learn how to dribble. Honor Sabbath. Ask God how you and your spouse, you and your friends, your children, how do we honor Sabbath? My recommendation would be to pick a day... um, In our culture, Saturday usually works best, but some people have retail jobs and various things. But just ask him how you honor Sabbath. And start with just an internal confession and and motivation that you say, all right, I'm just going to keep it real. Men, this is our problem, right? Your wives, your spouses, your girlfriends, they would love to just have a day where you don't have something to do. Like if you just stop doing your work, they would love that. But this is our issue, because we think that our identity comes from all the stuff we produce. And if we stop producing, we start to be diminished in our character and identity. So wrestle with that. I'm going to move on. (laughs) Wrestle with that. You'll see a, a tremendous value. So why do we tithe? Well, it's found in Malachi 3. After he says tithe, he says, well, here's what you can test me on, and watch what happens. And he says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he will not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. 
I had the King James that one. I don't read this and go, yeah, that's a good reason. I don't really hardly understand it. It's like, so my vine will cast her fruit? You know, I don't have any female vines in my life. I don't even really know what that means. Well, let's talk about that. To do that, I want to deconstruct this first promise here, that I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Um, I'm just going to zip through here these Hebrew words. The word he rebuke means to rebuke, to rebuke, uh, reprove, corrupt. Okay? The word devour means to eat, to burn up, or to feed on. Like it's just this consuming thing. Who feels like their work devours them sometimes? Like you just feel consumed by it. You can't stop your brain. You're off the clock, but the clock is still ticking in your little chronological mind that you're just never going to get out of the deadline world. You're being consumed by this. Destroy means to corrupt or to go to ruin or decay. Fruits means fruit, offspring, oftentimes children, progeny, growth. And the word ground is Adama, ha-adam, ground, earth. So what's key about this is that the word ground, I think the ground word is important because this is not, this is not like a plot of land, like a piece of territory, um, or sort of a generic name for like a field, the potter's field that uh, I, uh, Jeremiah goes into. This is Adama. This is the stuff of the earth. This is prophetically what humankind was pulled out of. Okay. So let's put these words together. I will rebuke the one who consumes you so that the sons of Adam will no longer be corrupted. This is one way to look at this. When we all start living lives of Sabbath and tithing, understanding that we're giving our best to God because he's the one that empowered us, one of the first things that begins to happen is that our lives become a testimony of the salvation of God. That our lives are not consumed with our own stuff. We become a living testimony of God's power and goodness. So much so that in our lives, God comes in through our behavior, through our actions, through our testimony of our life, and he can stop the one who is consuming the earth so that the sons of Adam are not corrupted. So that people come to know him. I think that ultimately here, guys, a huge part of tithing is about salvation for people. And it's not just so that the church has more money to mail more tracts to Africa. You know? It's about your life becoming a living testimony of the power of God. So the second part of this is even more not understandable, convoluted. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, who knows what hosts is? The Lord of the army, the fierce. So this now, this isn't like lovey Jesus, sweet little, you know, flannel graph Jesus. This is fierce warrior, overcoming, passionate love. The armies of the living God will come after you here, right? The strength. So vine, all throughout scripture, this word gets used to represent Israel. And it's a prophetic picture of Israel and God's chosen people. Now, I believe that, um, that we are grafted in. I believe it because Romans 11 uh, says that we're grafted into the vine. 
that we are part of God's chosen heritage. Right? So this is a promise for us. Cast before time, or before it's time, this is a word that means to miscarry. To miscarry. That's a strong word. I have some friends that have miscarried recently, and it's, it's a painful experience. It's a strong word and a painful experience. Now, this word field means a cultivated field, a specific territory, right? This is not ha-adam or adama, the earth. This is about a specific plot of land that's been given to you, okay? And that's an important piece to this puzzle. So we put this together. Neither will my chosen people miscarry my promises in the territory that I've given to them. Saith the Lord of hosts, the army of God. Now let's look at this as an expanded thing. Why do we tithe? Because when we tithe, we live our lives like this. God rebukes the one who consumes you, right? I've just had a, uh, an experience where I just got released. Uh, man, this, uh, I started a new job last week or Friday. Uh, and it was something that was uh, kind of a crazy story uh, in how that all happened. But the reality is that my job for the last three years has been utterly consuming. And I have given up so much. The stuff that I love, stuff that I was doing, my mind has been nonstop. And I've been consumed by it. And I'm just now realizing I have been released from this consumption. Like, if you stop your work, guys, gals, that consuming mindset that just makes you think there's nothing else that you have time for. I don't have time to volunteer. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time. Well, God will rebuke that consumer. He'll rebuke that off of you, which means you won't have to live with that. And you'll probably be more productive at your work if you don't spend all your time frustrated at yourself for not doing your work. So he rebukes the one who consumes you so that the sons of Adam are no longer corrupted. Your life becomes a testimony of him. And you, God's chosen person, will not miscarry his promises in the land that he's given to you. And this is the part that grieves me. And when I first saw this, I was like, oh, God, I do not want to miscarry your promises. Right? Because you've been given a territory. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And you've been given a measure of influence in your territory. And God has told you and gifted you and equipped you and called you. If you haven't heard the call, I'm calling you out tonight. You have been called by God to work your land. To release his life into the place that he's planted you. And when you live consumed by the devourer, you're not effective. And God is saying, look, I am tired of my church miscarrying my voice. I'm tired of the church. I'm tired of my children bringing to life something that's dead. How many women know this is important? (laughs) You've got a lot of pregnant mamas around. Knowing you're pregnant is important. For a couple of reasons, okay? 
When the Lord says that you will no longer miscarry his voice, that begs the question, oh, I didn't know I was pregnant. Yes, you're pregnant with the kingdom of heaven. He is growing something in you that he wants birthed into the world. You're pregnant with God's plans for your life and the lives of the people around you. You've got a baby growing up in you, you know? And if you don't know you're pregnant, I bet that's pretty scary. <laughs> right? Knowing you're pregnant's important. Why? Because you think, act, and plan differently. You stop drinking wine every night. You stop drinking wine every night. <laughs> Right? You do different things. You buy all kinds of random stuff. You stock up on applesauce and sausage. You know? Like, you, you think and act and plan differently when you know that you're pregnant. Pregnant, knowing you're pregnant gives your pain context. Right? You can't birth the kingdom of heaven on earth without a little opposition. Get your Lamans going here, y'all, and learn how to breathe in the voice and the presence of God and persevere until you bring forth the life of God. But if you don't know you're pregnant with the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be like, what's wrong with me? I have cancer? Every night I keep hearing a voice in my sleep. It keeps telling me that he's called me to prophesy to kings. I'm seeing stuff that's happening. It's the same thing. What's wrong? Uh, you're pregnant? <laughs> Joseph, Daniel, anyone? You've got something to do. And God's showing you what it is. When you know you're pregnant, you live with a daily expectancy of new life. Pun intended. Right? You're not walking around. I'm seeing a glowing pregnant mama back here. You know, you're not walking around just thinking, man, I just can't wait for this to get over. This is such a drain on my body. Sometimes you may feel that. But you're thinking, (laughs) this life, every mom I've ever talked to knows that the moment that life comes in, all of the pain was worth it. Like you couldn't even possibly imagine not walking through that because it's life. Y'all, live with an expectancy of new life bursting forth at any moment. God has got this. And this last one here, it's kind of a pun, but it's true, so I left it in. You know the Father. (laughs) I'm sure it's possible because it happens, but most everyone when they get pregnant know who's the father. And I think about Mary and Jesus in that virgin birth story, you know, and they knew who the father was. It was kind of a hard sell probably to Joseph. Um, (laughs) But written into this reality, y'all, is deep intimacy. Okay? Intimacy that comes in passion, and life is created from that. And when you understand that this is the context for what God's put in you, it makes all of our efforts and all of our striving makes more sense. And 
I think pregnant mamas like taking rest breaks more than guys that just work all the time. Right? When you understand you're carrying a life, you're more willing to stop and say, look, I didn't do this. Like, what am I doing? I'm growing a baby. Look at me. Look at all the work I'm doing. I'm growing this baby. Well, yeah, it's work, but what do you do to make the baby grow? What do you do to make the seed grow? You know, you plant, but God creates this whole world. He creates this whole ecosystem. You don't have to work to grow a baby. You have to work not to mess up the baby. Right? So we can mess up God's stuff, but we don't have to do a bunch of work to have his life come out of us. We can oppose him at every turn and make it painful and hard. But y'all, I know that God wants you to bring forth the life of his kingdom that's in you. And I feel this heart that we have been miscarrying his promises in our generation and in our land. And it's not okay that what God put in us, it's going to come out of you. And it can come out of you alive or it can come out of you dead. But it's going to come out. And if what's growing inside of you is kingdom, it's going to come out and produce life. If what's growing inside of you is death, it's going to come out and infect the world. And that's why it's so important that we learn how to rest in his presence and grow up in him. Y'all, this is part that I left out on purpose. This is back to Malachi 10. Bring the tithes into the storehouses and, says the Lord of hosts, and I will open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it so that no one will be without need. And I see these words and they connect me to the prophetic promises of Isaiah 200 years prior to Malachi and they connect me to 400 years later when Jesus was doing something awesome. And I want to show you. Isaiah prophesies this in the same context of a people that were, were far from God. And he cries out, oh, I've got a King James, this one. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou would come down, that the mountains might flow or melt at your presence. The cry of Isaiah was that God would open up the heavens and pour out his presence so that the mountains would be dissolved when the presence of God comes. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and coming to rest. This is the fulfillment of that cry in Isaiah, that the heavens would be rent, that the presence of God would come down and where does the presence of God land? On Jesus. Where does the presence of God land when the temple gets filled? On the disciples. Are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? What's the promise in Malachi? Bring the tithe into the storehouse. Live a life of Sabbath. Understand this so I can rend the heavens and pour out my Holy Spirit on you so that you have no more need. So that you live in a daily experience of my presence among you. Living with you. Y'all, this is so much more than cutting a check. It is cutting a check, but it's so much more than cutting a check. And I would encourage you all to learn how to dribble before you play the game of basketball. Sometimes it's good just to get out there in a game and figure it out. But learn this life of rest in God. So what is tithing? 
It's cultivating a life of generosity and rest. Declaring to the nations that it's the Spirit of God who gives you the ability to create. And you need to give your money. And you need to give your heart. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. He wants what your money is connected to. He wants that heart that says, you're the creative power in my life. And I will take a break from my life to acknowledge your glory and headship. And I will submit the best of what I have and give the best of what I have to you. Because I know that you're the one that gave it to me in the first place. When you can learn that, the devourer will be rebuked and the spirit of God, you'll be sensitive. It's not like God's going to send more spirit on you. You'll be sensitive to that because you're not going to be consumed by the devourer. So why tithe? Well, abundant outpouring of Holy Spirit. It's a good reason. Rending the heavens and pouring out his blessings so that you have no more need, that you're aware of his presence. Salvation for nations. This is in the money and in the declaration of your life. Fulfillment of the promises for your life for the place that the Lord has established you. You have a job to do, and your job is to be the person God created you to be. And when you're that person in the place he's made you, life springs up everywhere. So we finish where we started. Behold... This is the prophetic voice of Malachi, the fulfillment of Jesus. I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Would you guys stand with me? Living God, we hear your heart that behold, suddenly you are coming into these temples. And I declare a release of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to suddenly fall in this place and to land on the temples here in this room. Father, that we are the vessel, the temple, the habitation of the presence of God. And I thank you, Spirit of God, that you are filling and igniting these people here tonight. You are calling us into a life of cultivating intimacy and presence with you, submission to your heart, to your values in the kingdom, to generosity, but most importantly, Father, to understanding that you are the Holy One and that we will rest in your presence knowing that you have given us the ability to create, that it is not us, but it's you. So we just say to you tonight, Jesus, that we delight in you that we, our heart's affections are set on you. Father, we thank you and we receive you as an overwhelming pursuer, a lover, a warrior, who comes in his kindness and his grace and his fierceness to ransom a captive Israel, to draw. Father, I just set your hearts to prayer for our nation for a moment. Father, we declare over America that America has been ransomed from the captivity of their bondage, Father. We pray, God, for salvations to come into our nation, Father, in strange and unusual ways. Lord God, like strange and unusual, that maybe there's no even evangelism that's happening, God, that your presence just descends on a political meeting, Father. Father, maybe it's a Republican convention in San Antonio in a month and a half, and your presence just descends in that place, Father, and speaks life where there is no life. 
And Father, we agree with heaven that the best is yet to come. Father, and we agree with heaven that this earth will be filled with the encounter, the experience of the glory of God, not the destruction of God. And we thank you, God, that you have raised us up and planted us here in this place so that we would partner with you and live empowered and free and alive in your presence. We love you, King Jesus. We bless you in your holy name. Amen.